Thank you very much, Peter. Can we pray together as we sit? Heavenly Father, it's a day to think about giving, and we pray that as we attend to your word, you would move us in head and heart to appreciate all that you have given in giving us Jesus. Amen. Well, do please uh, carry on having that reading in front of you from page 1016. We are living in uh, unusual times in at least one respect. Uh, When the National Health Service was established after the last war, uh, the intention was that it would become an absolute pillar of our society. And indeed, that's what it's turned out to be. So much so that there were restrictions placed on whether or not doctors could strike. It's very unusual, therefore, to find ourselves in a period where doctors of any kind are on strike. The arguments go backwards and forwards as to whether that is right or wrong. But whatever side you may take in the argument, everyone agrees that the business of medicine is at the heart of how we operate as a society. 2,000 years ago, there were, around the time of Jesus, there was another group on strike. They were the showbread makers. Well, Alan, you say to me, who were the showbread makers? So let me tell you. Um, the, many of you will realize that <clears throat> it was part of the original law of God in the first five books of Scripture to lay out instructions as to what sacrifices should be offered in the temple. Initially, in the tent, as it was. Only later did it become uh, the temple of bricks and mortar. That was destroyed, and then Herod was having it rebuilt. But part of the sacrifice was the animal ones we tend to think of, and we'll come to those. But part also of the sacrifices was what was called the showbread, bread that was on a show, hence the name, and laid out every day, uh, renewed every day, uh, as part of the worship of God. The showbread makers, the bakers, were on strike for a very basic reason that they weren't being paid enough. No showbread, no proper worship. No proper worship, societal uh, inadequacy. There was a sense uh, at the time that things were falling apart if the worship of God could not be conducted. As medicine is in our society, worship was in theirs. A pillar of the society was crumbling. They were on strike because the economics of the temple weren't being run correctly. Now today, when we come to this building, we can have little idea of the place of the temple in the society of Jesus' day. Jerusalem was tiny by the standards of Norwich. It was considerably smaller than the walled area uh, that uh, we know about as our own fine city. Within that tiny space, though, the temple took up a huge amount. The floor plan for the temple was 500 metres by 300 metres. Now, if you're not quite sure what that might feel like, uh, let me tell you that from here, on a direct line, as the crow flies, from here to the band stand in Chapelfield Park is 530 metres. So that's, if you set off walking to that band stand, 
you'd be walking for quite a long way before you would come to the end of the floor of the temple. Most of it was blank space. It was the court of the Gentiles. Uh, A space smaller than Chapelfield Park would be uh, laid out as what you might think of as the, uh, the business of the temple, the sacrificing and so on. But around the outside of the blank space in the court of the Gentiles was the portico, the, the, the covered area, where literally the business of the temple would be conducted. The business of the temple was enormous. The temple economy dominated the whole region. At the first Passover, when Herod had rebuilt the temple, a quarter of a million lambs were slaughtered. Just imagine a quarter of a million lambs. What did the priests do all day? Well, they administered the sacrifices. You turned up and they would say, well, lambs are over there, doves are over there, grain offering, go over there. They would be guides just telling people how to manage the crowds, how to manage the business of sacrifice. Think of the fields if you've been uh, to Jerusalem. Think of the fields of Bethlehem, those fields that we know from the story of the incarnation. Those are the fields that supplied uh, the Jerusalem temple. And presumably that first Passover, even they were inadequate to supply the numbers needed. The, the impact of the economy of the temple moved far further afield. Think of just the physical impact, the smell, the smoke, the cleaners that would be required for the blood of 250,000 lambs, the tourists, the money, the money. The law specified a temple tax. The entire economy of the temple and therefore of the city depended on the temple tax. It couldn't be paid in unclean Roman coin. You would take your money and you would go to the money changers in these porticos around the court of the Gentiles. You'd hand it over and they would give you temple money back. From that, you could pay the uh, tax itself And you could then buy the animals that you were going to use for sacrifice. The scale of the enterprise is enormous. It's not surprising that Wikipedia calls the court of the Gentiles a bazaar. There was money changing going on and purchase of animals. Notice that uh, in the story, uh, Jesus doesn't just overturn the tables of the money changers... Uh, but he actually drives, sorry, uh, where's it gone? He drives out those who are buying and selling. What were they buying and selling? The animals. The Royal Bank of Scotland is doing quite well at the moment. This year, we heard that it only lost £2 billion last year. Um, We happen to bank with the Royal Bank of Scotland, Uh, We're quite glad that we will no longer have to bank with the Royal Bank of Scotland and can move to a Dutch bank. Not that they're doing a great deal better. Uh, But the temple would have played the same scale of role in Jewish finances as all our big banks put together. The temple was pretty much the only financial institution 
of the Jewish community. So when, the, when, when you learn that the rulers of the Jews, it was the Sanhedrin, who had the temple finances all to themselves in complete lockdown, that's where they made their money. Then you begin to understand how the finances of Jerusalem worked. Now, I told this uh, at the uh, earlier service, and John Drake was present, so, and I got away with it with him, so um, you, you will forgive me. If you go to Jerusalem with John Drake, he will at some point take your wallet from you and take it down to the Street of the Money Changers, which is still there, Street of the Money Changers. It's moved from, from once the um, temple was destroyed in AD 72, it moved outside the walls, and it's still there. And he will take your wallet and he will take it down there. He'll take a few other wallets as well. And he will get you a very good rate. And unusually, by the standards of the money changers, he will not take a cut for himself. But they do take a cut for themselves. And every transaction now, if you're changing money, and certainly then, has a slice for the agent. And then it was a very big slice for the agent. And then it would have been a slice for the Sanhedrin, too. It's not surprising that Jesus uses the words of Jeremiah. You've made it a den of robbers. The scale of finances had led to enormous hikes in the price of the sacrifices. You may know the name Gamaliel. He, had be, he was Paul's teacher uh, when Paul was learning to be a Pharisee. Now, a relative of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, uh, bearing in mind that Pharisees and the rulers never got on. Uh, Pharisees were people movement, Sanhedrin were the aristocracy. Um, There had been a serious proposal from a relative of Gamaliel that such was the crisis in temple finances, with the poor being ripped off, that actually the the prices should be cut by 99%. That was how bad they thought it was. So it is not as though Jesus is going into a situation in which he's the only one who's ever thought there was a problem. The prophets of old knew that corrupt religion, corrupted by money, was a problem. What would God do about it? Well, judgment. The early prophet, Hosea, Uh, has uh, the God saying to his people, look, when I first saw you, you were to me like a fig tree with its early fruit on it. You were beautiful and fruitful. But then later on, Jeremiah, the later prophet, says, you are so corrupt that now judgment is going to be visited on you. The tree will no longer have figs, and the leaves will wither. That's what lies behind the fact that this story of the temple is sandwiched between two references to Jesus uh, destroying, withering up a fig tree. It's the only miracle of destruction that there is in the entire gospel account of what Jesus does. Why is he doing it? To make the point that judgment that the prophets talked about is now actually happening. So what he goes on to do in the middle, at the temple, is the enacting of judgment by God 
on God's own system. The prophets had been loud on the topic, but this is different. They'd said it needs reforming. You need to be better people. But here is Jesus, not saying you need to be better people, but you are now a hopeless case. Judgment is being visited upon the whole temple structure. And Jesus, moreover, is not doing what they wanted him to do. There was a book at the time of Jesus that lots of Jews, all Jews, would have known. It wasn't part of Scripture, but it was a prediction that the Messiah would come, come to his temple, and cleanse the temple of the Gentiles. Well, Jesus does not do that. You can imagine how enthusiastic they would be. Yes, finally, we're going to get rid of the Gentiles. The corrupt influence of the Gentiles on us is going to be destroyed. But the Sanhedrin are Jews. It's not the Gentiles that are at fault. So when Jesus comes to the temple, he doesn't cleanse it of the Gentiles. He cleanses it for the Gentiles. And he says, quoting Jeremiah, uh, My house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of robbers. It was meant to be for the Gentiles. It was meant to be the court of the Gentiles. But all the Gentiles could do when they got to the court of Gentiles was hand over money or make money. It wasn't doing its job. The whole thing is hopelessly corrupt. Well, God and mammon. We know that Jesus draws them together often enough. Why? Because nothing is ever so bad as something that is very nearly good. You could imagine the political defense of the priests about the whole system defending it. Well, I mean, the the, the tax, the the, the changing system, that's necessary, they would say. For the, for the proper worship of God. It's laid down in Scripture. Yes, it is. But it's not laid down that the robbers should take their slice as they were doing. That the Jewish people should exploit Jewish people. Now, we may not think that uh, the annual visiting of our finances is exciting. But let me tell you that they do think it's exciting in some parts of Amsterdam. One of the congregations there that I shall be looking after is largely composed of immigrants. And many of those immigrants come to our church because for the first time they've experienced a church that has accurate and straightforward and transparent accounting for finance. They're used to being in churches in Europe where the pastor goes off on holiday for three or four months in summer and he goes off with the accumulated bag of the collections for the year And somehow, mysteriously, when he comes back, the bag is empty. And they start all over again. But it's a real point of witness in the Anglican congregation in Amsterdam that our accounts are well-kept and transparent. Money should not be exciting, if I can put it like that. And if if it's become exciting, it's normally for the wrong reasons. It was exciting in the days of Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. The robbers were in charge of the cash. Robbery is now so native to the system in Jerusalem 
that it can't be solved by simply complaining anymore. Reform is not enough. It doesn't work. Something new is needed. This kind of worship will always lead to robbery, so Jesus says, and John records it, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. And as John says, they did not understand that the temple he was talking of was his body. Well, that's the story. The fig tree is cursed and destroyed. The temple system must be killed off. So it's not surprising that in verse 18, the leaders make plans to kill off Jesus himself, the troublemaker. But the crowds, the crowds are amazed. And I guess that's where we come in. We know how the crowds will be only a week later calling for his crucifixion. But for now, these crowds who are those subject to the temple tax, they no doubt hate the system that binds them. They are rejoicing in amazement. Someone stood up for them. The crowds are the people who have to pay up. And I guess that's where we come in. At least on a finance Sunday. As Amanda has said, last year was very good. We were ourselves surprised in the church council to find out how good God and his people have been to Holy Trinity. Thank you. This year, it's all change. I shall leave soon. Andy's term of two years comes to an end. Ben will leave. The basic budget has been laid before you. But it doesn't include at the moment any options on employment for any of those I've just mentioned. Well, I'm not employed. That, that will get replaced. Don't worry. But there's no further options in the budget. As Amanda says, if we get more, we can do more. And I hope after two years of work laying down new ministry for those local to our church, I hope we will give priority to those people, to those who historically have felt rightly or wrongly that this church is for posh people, for the incomers, not for those who live here. I'm not going to go into finance. That's Amanda and uh, Sam's department. But I am going to look at that story in Mark 11 and say this. If we get worship right, not of the building, but of Jesus, the new temple, if we get worship right, then the rest follows, including money. There was nothing wrong with the temple. It was God's idea. It expressed a complete and wholehearted devotion to God. But it was those who'd taken their eyes off God who destroyed the possibility of the temple being used for its original purpose. They focused on the things that were near the issues of God's worship, but not at its heart. And Jesus is the new temple. It's an old question, but let me ask it. What does your checkbook, or your wallet, or your RBS screen, in my case, say about our devotion to Jesus? It is the only standard that matters. Not Trinity's accounts, but the account that we give of ourselves to God. Get prayer and devotion right and the money will flow. So let the story ask you whether you are robbing God. Perhaps financially, but it also works in other ways. 
perhaps robbing of him of time, of the head space or heart space that he should occupy in you, of the compassion that he should fire up in you. It will show up in your money, but that may not be where the challenge lies. Get devotion right to this Jesus, and all else will follow. Can we pray together? Almighty God, in a moment we shall sing that we believe in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can proclaim it with our mouths, just as those in ancient days could buy a sacrifice to proclaim their devotion. But whether it's laid down in lambs or on our lips, our devotion is really a matter of our heart. And we ask for that daily conversion of our hearts, that what we proclaim with our lips might be lived out and dearly held as complete devotion to the God who is Trinity. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.